Aloha and good day. This is Clint Hansen with Maui Luxury Real Estate, and this is Maui Real Estate Radio on the KAOI Radio Group, broadcasting 1110 AM, 98.7 FM on the KAOI Group. You can listen to this and all other shows at MauiRealEstateRadio.com. And if you want any uh, real estate information, you can always go to MauiRealEstate.net. That's my personal website where you can search all listings, not just locally here on Maui, but all of Hawaii. I've also got my co-host here with Axia Home Loans, Byron Yap. Say hello, Byron, and introduce yourself. Hello, Byron Yap here with Axia Home Loans and MLS number 860092 on Maui. All right. And of course, the ever-present Paul Brubaker, our what I like to call state factual Paul, <laughs> our <laughs> economist, the man with the information who study and you were just telling people always are asking for your guidance and uh, I appreciate when you come on the show. So tell us a little about wow, your my pleasure. and, um, and uh, how you came to know this gig. Uh, I'm sorry. The first question. Oh, so just tell about... us a little bit about yourself. Well, sorry. I was talking over you. Um, okay. Yeah, I know. I grew up here over here on Oahu and uh, thank you for accommodating uh, our conversation virtually because I got so many people saying, I was just telling yeah, Byron, you know, they were like, came to our conference, like, how, how about I zoom in, you know? Yeah. But uh, uh, grew up over here and studied on the mainland, like a lot of us get a chance to do, and was able to, fortunate uh, in being able to come back. And uh, after a long career in commercial banking, um, uh, as, as, as an economist, you know, the last, I had the last economist job in Hawaii commercial banking, got to know all of you guys and uh, people all over the state and, and, things going on in different industries. So it's been a You really pleasure. helped provide an invaluable resource. And I remember, you know, before the crime crisis, when you're like, you know, explaining, you're like, hey, just a heads up, external forces. <laughs> you know, that's funny. Uh, I actually got my start at Bank of Hawaii. I just kind of say the brand X name. Um, uh, during, uh, prior to the Latin American debt crisis, yeah. I had come home from school one winter to surf and, uh, you know, I needed a job and I talked these guys into hiring me, didn't know what we were going to do. But uh, I, you know, I was reading the literature and got together with a guy in the IT department and we coded a country risk index that predicted uh, the top seven or eight countries are all Latin American sovereign debt, sovereign borrowers. And uh, so we sent this up to the, I, I worked for the head of uh, international banking and sure enough, the next summer, the Latin and American debt crisis blew up. Bam, bam, bam. Which was the first of many. And uh, financial, just financial crises. Of course, most recently, we've had a, a, a global biological and economic crisis that we've managed through fairly well, I'd have to say. But the, the um, you know, the aftershocks from which I think are still with us and what's happening. Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah. Especially right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things I want to start off this show is uh, basically asking kind of a very multifaceted, complicated question about where we find the economy currently. Um, you know, I kind of talked previous to this radio show a little bit about Paul to prime him because it's, it's, it's very multifaceted and, and long. So uh, first, I want to start off on like kind of a microcosm example. Several months ago, a buyer of mine uh, we offered on what we believe to be a fair amount, given the market information. And we were actually turned down as they're not able to justify our offer, despite the examples and comps and other considerations that we gave. Since our last offer, the market has continued to be turbulent and interest rates continue to rise, increasing the monthly cost of this potential purchase by about $500 a month. We came back recently with an offer $100,000 less than our previous one, and we're able to strike a deal and are now under contract. Mm. Um, now, the reason rates have increased is a means for the Fed to try and control inflation. And it is my opinion that while inflation may be curbing, I think that the raising interest rate is an insufficient tool given the complicated problem. Mm -hmm. While undoubtedly the massive inflow of capital in the markets caused an increase in spending, production simultaneously decreased as a result of the worldwide shutdowns and poor infrastructure. Decreasing spending by decreasing money supply does not deal with the fundamental supply issues that result from the turmoil happening in currently one of our top global suppliers, China. Mm -hmm. um, raising rates 
also does very little to help with the insufficient uh, <laughs> infrastructure here with our current shipping system in the United States. This prior week has been particularly turbulent for the stock market with trillions in losses, similar to the losses a month before. Beyond the stock market, my greatest concern is the potential collapsing debt bubble surrounding the commercial loans here in the United States, as we have, uh, we can be potentially over leveraging the equities market worse than the 2008 subprime crisis. To me, this is the domino that can push us from a small recession into a depression. I think the triggering for the push of that domino uh, over and causing commercial securities to be devalued would be businesses moving more permanently to a work from anywhere model and keeping a fraction of their office space. They will be compelled to do this as a means of saving expenses in lieu of letting go precious labor as a company should strive to cut their excesses. I actually just read a wonderful article on Forbes about what they call labor hoarding. So mm. we can get into that some other time. With vacancies as high as 50% in the billionaire's row in New York, it is my belief that these leases will not be renegotiated. It's going to be very difficult for landlords of large office spaces to make good on the commercial loans when those loans are also dealing with higher interest rates. The complete collapse, in addition, the complete collapse of China's real estate market with their defaults, Ponzi scheme style developers, continued COVID lockdowns, and bank runs that have required military interventions all may have an unintended positive impact on this equation. As we're increasing our interest rate to strengthen the American dollar, China is actually reducing their interest rates as a means to keep their country from imploding. This reduction in their interest rate makes their labor markets more competitive. With a stronger American dollar, we have more buying power and thereby reducing inflation in the United States. This does not solve supply issues stemming from China, however, as continued COVID shutdowns are complicated by climate change. The shutdowns speak for themselves as factory workers, without factory workers, there's it is not very good at producing anything at all because you need those workers for production. In addition to those COVID shutdowns, major rivers have dried up in China. The biggest, the second biggest one has dried up and that prevents hydroelectric from powering factories and increasing transportation costs of those uh, rivers were used to ferry goods. China's economic woes extend beyond residential real estate, but that is the biggest concern as it accounts for a third of their GDP. Poor regulation in investment banking has meant that relatively small online banks absconded with billions of dollars of Chinese citizens' money. When the citizens protested demanding the CCP, the CCP's reaction was to bring in military and tanks to quell the, you know, the, the uprising. Even though these investment online banks are not a normal part of the banking system, it does not inspire confidence with the CCP and does, um, but the CCP has done their best to prevent the dissemination of information and runs on the banks as it would uh, be too much on an already stressed monetary system. While I will not get into the details, China's decision to lend American dollars on their Belt and Road Initiative is providing disastrous with the large number of defaults from those foreign countries because it has left them, China, holding the bag, unable to print their way out of the problem. The, react, the reduction of ridership and production of underutilized high-speed rail systems in China is also causing them to default on a nearly trillion-dollar infrastructure investment. Um, that was how they were basically dealing with the subprime crisis in 2008 just to print their way out. So finally, the continued global economic drain from the Ukrainian conflict on the energy markets exacerbate inflationary triggers, meaning that the Fed will likely continue to raise rates. Typically, the bottom of the real estate market comes a few months after interest rates have reached their maximum. On a national level, I do not believe our real estate is uh, bound to see, con uh, I think on a national, we will definitely see continued slowdown and a reduction in prices. I am noticing in the local real estate market having a very complicated reaction. 
the lower end seems to have slowed down significantly in terms of uh, interest and sales. So less people looking, less sales overall, while the higher end is seeing major interest, but sales have slowed. So a lot of people looking, but not a lot of sales. Uh, I think this will be the next phase of the economy as wealthy climate refugees seeking a reprieve from extreme weather. Maui is ideally situated to enjoy the temperate environment, and it has been nearly 180 years since we've been hit by a hurricane, given our location. Um, with the uh, international influences, I think overall real estate prices will need to be negotiated from current asking, but I think that our prices will drop significantly less than the mainland, given the desirability of Hawaii and an impact on the climate change of the world. So it doesn't mean we're not gonna drop, I just think it's not gonna be as significant. So Paul, given this ridiculously long tirade of a question, kind of taking in all those factors, what do you say, you know, on a piece by piece, like how screwed are we? <laughs> I, let's, let's, let's take the China part of the um, question and just leave that on the side for a minute. We can come back to it. I, it yeah, turns it's out positive. it's probably not as pertinent Mm -hmm. um, in the sense that if you if you take that piece out and um, and then let's uh, let's leave the commercial real estate piece and then the Maui observations at the end to come back to if you take that piece out then what you're left with is the part where you were uh, now I lost my train of thought where we were talking about uh, um, dominoes inflation or uh, yeah. And uh, how we deal and, and whether the, the conventional monetary policy tools that the Fed is exercising are sufficient to uh, mitigate the inflation that we now observe. And so, you know, to raise the general question, is it worth it, you know, to raise interest rates as much as they would have to in order to make it work and so on and so forth. So working back to the original uh, part of your question. And it's at, at that juncture where we... So where we started to talk about dominoes, here's, and you made a comparison to the subprime uh, bubble and then the great recession that followed. Um, here's where I think we can breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief before we turn to the substance, the, to a substantive issue that you raised implicitly. So what's with the relief? Unlike the situation we faced let's say in 2007, on the, on the brink of the financial crisis as it emerged over that summer with some hedge funds and odd places that were, that were excessively exposed to the subprime tranches of, of, of um, uh, what are they called anyway? You know, these these derivatives that were out there. Um, that was like the, the, the canary in the coal mine was people exposed to the subprime, subprime tranches of credit default swap positions on the collateralized debt obligations built from collateralized debt obligations of these underlying uh, mortgages. Hey, that so, five times so, fast. I know, right? I couldn't. I, it took me a while. It's been so long since I talked about this. Here's Byron originating mortgages in a reasonably, you know, uh, uh, disciplined uh, manner from the standpoint of credit uh, risk management. And then this chain of derivatives, which also are designed to distribute the remaining risk from the originators and the packagers, the Byron and the people to whom he sells the loans, to investors who are willing to strip off the risk and take that exposure in, in exchange for a high return. Well, that, that had gone global and we hadn't correctly figured out how to price, whether the pricing of that risk, I mean, so just think of it sort of yeah, what the underlying sort of the, principle the was. And so it was a combination of this systemic global exposure and interdependency of that exposure. We're all linked to each other now. There's a hedge fund in Australia and a hedge fund in Germany that's exposed in a certain class of derivatives that's related to 
mortgage lending, which albeit ordinarily relatively disciplined in the presence of an asset pricing bubble in housing, maybe didn't have as firm a foundation as we thought, uh, which became clear very quickly when those prices fell. Okay, that was then. Why is that different from the way things are right now? And, and therefore, why maybe we can leave China to decide? First of all, everything we needed to learn about pricing of risk and derivatives and how to build resilience into the financial system so that the, the interdependence and therefore the transmission of that risk is suppressed, right? So that the, uh, you know, all of that went into place with vigorous regulatory, financial regulatory reforms. And I would have to say, and I think Byron would back me up, a much more, uh, a much more rigorous and disciplined mm-hmm. credit culture in general. Yes. Um, I love like that, that, Byron. I mean, when they put those regulations in, there's a lot more hurdles to jump, right? Yes, yes. Like Paul said, there's it, it, it's a lot stricter. Yes, uh, but with, we have a better outcome. And so, if you look at the exposure today, uh, I, I think the latent right. There's always the risk that if something economic circumstances change, a certain proportion of borrowers are going to be exposed. Mm-hmm. They're going to be vulnerable to the nature, the specific nature of that change and at, are at greater risk of default as a result of that change, not anything that they're doing. A pandemic would do that. You see what I mean? Like, you know, yeah. out of the blue, into the black. And well, the whole thing too, though, I mean, with those, uh, especially for residential commercial mm-hmm. loans, I mean, residential right. loans, mm-hmm. is the fact that right now there's never been this much equity built into home ownership. I mean, we haven't seen this in what, 40 plus years. There's more uh, equity there. So even if prices halved, people are still going to be above most mortgages that are out there, which is fantastic. But of course, the real issue I don't think is with the residential market, you know, because I think they're, we're pretty seasoned. They've got our noses bloodied pretty bad. It's the commercial section because with the residential section, um, you know, the securities market that they have out there for banks. So say they need a hundred million dollars. They sell a block of loans that are just as good as cash. And because it's just regular income that comes into them. But of course, if those loans start failing, the block is not worth as much because it's not producing the proper cash flow. And that's what happened with the 2008 subprime crisis. But with with the commercial loans, instead of, you know, I think residential make up 20% or less than 30% of all the securities for banks and commercial loans make up like 40%. So uh, that's my, my understanding is it's actually, there's more of them comparatively speaking. And those timeframes are smaller loans. They're not 30 year loans. They're like five years normally. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, um, that, that they may, that may be true for, you know, money center banks, but re- residential is the big dog yeah. in, in the banking system. Um, either way though, I, I, I think it's important to let, let's just, Let's keep the commercial exposure to the side just for one more second, because the fact, as you point out, that what, what essentially is better capitalization, the lenders are better capitalized, the system is better capitalized, Far better. the interdependence to which I referred, right, the, 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 the systemic risk management, uh, the way the regulators look at the system, the way the examiners uh, do their job, that's that's a, a we're just better protected from things mis- metastasizing and then as you say after a decade of uh, relatively steady appreciation uh there's a lot of home equity out there there's a lot of now it's on paper right it, you know it, whether you can turn that into liquidity depends on market conditions but yeah. the fact of the matter is that you're you're absolutely right everybody's balance sheet is in better shape and that's a part of the reason why, as I say, I think we can leave to the side concern about um, things unraveling and dominoes falling and so on and so forth. But that leads us back one more step in your question to an important distinction to which you alluded between where the sources of inflation 
that the Fed now is having to deal with, where they originate. And there's, you know, we usually think of inflation as coming from, you know, too much money chasing too few goods, right? Uh, an increase in demand that is it this way? An increase in demand, which given supply means that prices have to go up. Um, now, the extraordinary aspect. Oh, can of, I play a quick little clip? Yes. Yeah, sure. So this is this is Nancy Pelosi interviewing the Fed chair. Okay. This is funny. I'll time that. Will gas prices go down as a result of your interest rate increase? I would not think so. No. Okay. Chair Powell, will the Fed's interest rate increases bring food prices down for families? I, I wouldn't say so. No. <laughs> so that's kind of problematic isn't that the yeah. two number one issues that we're facing right yeah, now? yeah if you look if you look at the urban hawaii consumer price index what's been hot you know this it's their components and the hot items that is the ones above average right and the average is seven percent so we need to get the average down but the ones above average are fuel food and vehicles yeah. new cars and used cars now let's where are those things coming from? Fuel, well, partly that's the demand for fuel recovering as the economy came out of the COVID sudden stop. So part of that's on the demand side, but part of it's on the supply side. The Russia's invaded Ukraine, disrupted European energy uh, markets, the OPEC members, which is now OPEC plus Russia, they see an opportunity to limit production and take advantage of the higher prices. And let's face it, Every oil producer on the planet is happy to get 90 or $100 a barrel instead of $40 a barrel. So it's yeah. not like even if you're not a member of OPEC, you're not on, that, you're on board that train. Still, these factors, as your clip points out, are out of the Federal Reserve's control. Jay Powell doesn't control what Vladimir Putin does in Ukraine or what a Saudi uh, oil uh, minister is going to decide. So it's important to break all those, you know, the drought and the heat wave in North America and Europe and its impact on grain prices is not going to be resolved by monetary policy. And the lack of motor vehicles, new motor vehicles, which is partly about demand because we probably sent out, you know, the last batch of COVID relief checks was probably unnecessary because it was at precisely that moment after March 2021, after the ARPA, that round of stimulus led to a demand increase that precipitated the inflation that we now observe. And in the case of motor vehicles, it came from the fact that on top of everybody who'd been hiding out in their cave for a couple of years, trying to buy a new Ford F-150, all the rental car companies that had dumped their fleets at the dawn of COVID were coming back into the market to rebuild their corporate fleets, while the people who assemble the components back in some factory in China are still under lockdown. And in particular, the semiconductors that fuel everything we not just drive around in, but work with uh, yeah. are in really short supply in particular the five to seven nanometer semiconductors all <laughs> of which are produced in taiwan yeah. <laughs> like in five foundries or some crazy like um which take two years to build and are really difficult to build the, the foundry itself yeah um, you those in a seismically still area it, the process for making complete clean rooms is so unbelievably hard. The tooling, the machinery, the skilled labor, it's yeah. just unbelievably difficult, which, you know, the reaction in government was what a $70 billion stimulus to U.S. Well, semiconductor now, producers. It still takes two years to build a foundry, even if you could build one, as you say. And then they reduce production. <laughs> but the, the point is that all, all of those chips we're going into the laptops we were buying so we could remote we could work remotely from our pimped out home office. So it's just this, you can't, you know, nobody could have imagined that all of these things would happen at the same time. And universally, it's not just that there was simultaneous, it was the entire planet moving in the same direction. And and so to your to your point, 
about half the inflation, I mean, in round numbers, about half the inflation we're dealing with is from the demand side of the economy and raising interest rates and reducing demand, uh, whether it's investment demand or consumption demand, reducing demand will, you know, take down the pressure that's leading to the inflation. But the other half of the inflation is coming from constraints on the supply side. And those are of a nature that take longer to resolve and require factories to reopen or entrepreneurs to realize and be enabled to realize an opportunity to create productive capacity that doesn't exist and so on and so on, so forth. One of which changes is the, the like this brings us back to commercial real estate now, is redeploying the existing productive capacity from what we used to do in offices and in real retail space that we're now doing remotely and online through e-commerce. So there's vacant space that has to could that is an opportunity to you know be there's an opportunity to redeploy it to produce some of the things that we're short of right now for yep. whatever reasons and to get get those paths of supply and demand in alignment back in alignment would, and, uh, would you say that we are in uncharted waters because we've never had a global event like this? You know what I'm saying? Because I see every yeah. day different things, the stock market up, the stock market yeah. down. What would you say? Would you say we're in uncharted waters we've never been? Not, not exactly. Um, I'll give you an example of where we did have a global event. Um, and you can see some of the same thing. Uh, I wish I could share screen because I can actually show you the data, but I'll do the lovely uh, little hands version of it. Well, it'll take me a while while I go oh, no the problem. program, but I'll describe while I go find the, the slides. So if you go back to 2010, 2011, when the, um, uh, when the recovery, you know, the, the Great Recession ended in mid-2009, end of 2009 for Hawaii. And then it took a while for, you know, it took a while for the economy to sort of get its mojo back. And um, in the course of that, you had had oil, which had been, you know, $25 a barrel for 25 years. Uh, all, all through the 19, uh, late 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s, maybe 20 years, let's say, you had oil start to come back to life as the emerging market economies around the world, you know, the fast growing economies, as their demand for an, a non-renewable resource, for an exhaustible resource, petroleum began to grow faster than global supply. Now, as those prices go up, of course, as the prices of oil go up, people, first, they wait to see whether those prices are gonna stick, but once they get to a level and have stayed there, you know, 50, 60, $70 long enough, then you go out and try to find oil in the more expensive places from which to extract it, like the tar sands of Saskatchewan, right? With horizontal uh, drilling and hydraulic fracturing, right? Higher prices lead innovators to come up with new ways to extract more costly uh, uh, carbon-based fuels. And that was going on in the, in the late, in the latter part of the first decade uh, of the century. And then came this big recession, shut everybody down. About 2010, 2011, things start to come back into focus. Demand comes back, oil goes right back to where we left off before the recession, which is about $120 a barrel. And at $120 a barrel, every dude in South and North Dakota is looking for oil, right? And so you have this huge increase in demand as the economy is coming out of the recession. But at that moment, OPEC and OPEC Plus are looking to you know, limit their share of global production, like to, you know, enjoy the higher yeah. revenue that comes from that. Okay, long story short, this is going to make your brain hurt, but here's what the data are for Hawaii in that period. On the right-hand side, we're looking at, I'll just point to one period, this vertical line, you know, this, I'm connecting the dots here way over on the right side of the screen from 2010, 2011. Mm -hmm. What is that? 
the unemployment rate on the horizontal axis, about six and a half or seven percent, was steady in this period, about a two-year period. So unemployment, which today is four percent in Hawaii, at that time stuck at about seven percent at the end of the recession. But inflation going from almost zero, uh, zero at the end of 2009, going by the end of 2011 to 4%. Now that looks low from our perspective today at 7%. The point is, Byron is asking about a global event where you see all these things coming together. And here it shows up in Hawaii. Our unemployment rate is the same, but inflation keeps going up, 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 up as the price of energy commodities uh, rise. And um, you basically have the increase in demand against either supply that, right, it takes a while to go drill a new oil field. Uh, Supply can't respond. It takes a while to build a semiconductor factory. It takes a while to restore the, you know, the supply chain when all the empty containers are on one side of the ocean and all the vessels waiting to get back into service are on the other. We've been going through these things to, 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 you know, to wrap up on Byron's question, we've never seen something this gnarly mm-hmm. or global in perspective. But trust me, every time the price of oil goes from $40 a barrel to $120 a barrel, it's a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The entire planet is eating the same uh, shock. And there's nothing monetary policy can do about that. Yeah. The, the, the issue you raise uh, um, is, Clint, is what tools do we have in our policy toolkit to deal with the supply side right down to what tools do we have in maui county to deal with the fact that we can't supply enough housing we're set up to deny people the right to build housing we've got a system that lets the people who object to development intervene in the process Mm -hmm. of development we don't have a system that lets that designates where development should take place because it makes sense to occur there and then facilitates the production of housing in those areas. We have a system that's a gatekeeping system. And every time you go up to the gate, a new group of angry of, people, uh, angry people uh, uh, nimbyists show up and say, not in my backyard. So that, that, that's a microcosmic problem uh, that's pertinent to the macro issue we're facing in Mm -hmm. the global economy right now. Yeah. I mean, supply side, you know, like you're saying, is the biggest problem when it comes to pricing. You know, certainly limiting um, money. In in housing now, you're talking about housing. I think right now supply is the problem. It's not so much, you know, monetary policy. And you're right. The current Biden administration has signed, I think, one of the largest uh, oil exploration bills of, you know, all time just recently, which is kind of funny to be backtracking from completely, you know, negating our um, previous agreements with our largest trade partner, Canada, and saying, nope, no oil pipeline. And, you know, even very pro electric cars like Elon Musk is like, no, 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 no. We need oil in order to properly transition into electrical. If you cut supply, it's going to shock world, um, you know, supply chains, and we're not going to be able to transition over. And and all has been holding true. I mean, our supply has gone down and demand has gone up. So we're kind of screwed there. So if maybe they could get back on building that pipeline and actually drill some of those areas, we can properly transition to renewable energies. But until that happens, if there's no fuel in a car to, you know, properly mine the necessary information or information uh, materials to create batteries, then we're not going to have those batteries at all or solar panels or whatnot and or transporting the materials to one place to another. So it all is part and parcel to the larger puzzle. And um, so I do see long-term solutions like the, you know, more oil fields. Um, but right now those are a ways off. I mean, those take years to come into effect. And with OPEC, like you're saying, you know, limiting supply, that's just basically going to maintain higher rates. We also are seeing record profits though for corporations. I mean, that's oh, yeah. the other part is they saw the opportunity just like the oil companies to increase their profit margins. And they're like, hey, well, just increase prices. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's one of these all of the above kinds of uh, challenges that we face. We don't, 
we, we have a much more limited set of tools because of the nature of the way we've developed, right? Our, our tools have been developed in response to the way these problems manifested in the past. The last time we really had supply, uh, you know, aggregate supply related uh, inflation problems in this country, the ones that persisted or that, um, that um, complicated- 1980 uh, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, 1970s, in, really. Oh, 1978? Yeah. yeah when it and, went up to what, like 14%? Well, <laughs> I mean, you, there, there are actually several episodes in, after the Yom Kippur War in 1973, which was really the coming out party for OPEC. It was the, for the Arab oil embargo was the yeah. first time that the, that the oil producing and exporting countries that comprise OPEC realized that they, their collective uh, action uh, as, a, as a cartel could be exercised on that scale. In 1979, uh, the issue was the uh, Iranian revolution, yeah. which uh, was a, a different sort of uh, disruption, but it's informative, that, it's informative <laughs> that geopolitical risk looms large in each of those episodes. And, um, and, and in the current uh, environment that the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, it just, you know, it's just a fact that that's the driver behind what we're seeing with grains and with uh, energy commodities. Yeah. It turns out Ukraine is the biggest wheat and corn producer uh, in Europe. It's like, you know, the plains of, uh, I mentioned Saskatchewan, the breadbasket of Europe. Yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, it's interesting you mentioned profits because I actually have pulled those data and I'll just show them. If you look at the, um, so it got to be, this is tricky to interpret. So these are as a percent of the total. So right, 0.05 is 5%, 10%, 15%, yeah. These are mm -hmm. profits per unit of value added, of non-financial value added. Okay, so value added is the, you know, the value of what we produce at different stages of production, which shows up in the final value when you add up a final value of a good or service, when you add up all the values added at each stage of production. And when you aggregate the profits per unit of value added in the non-corporate financial sector in the United States, first of all, you can see over the last 70 years of the lifetime of Queen Elizabeth, long uh, live the king, <laughs> right? <laughs> I guess now. Um, I guess now. Um, you can see how those margins increased from about 2% in the early post-war period to about 3 or 4% in the period you and I were just talking about, the mid-70s and late 70s, when these supply shocks and geopolitical events were manifesting themselves in inflationary momentum. And then most recently in the 20-teens, post-Great Recession, about 11% over the pre-COVID decade. Now, after COVID, have leapt fifty percent to sixteen and a half percent. This is a consequence of con con concentration in many industries that is not necessarily a consequence of of you know the evil corporations trying to manipulate the markets, but in Less large part, well, the fact that you know we all it's, it's, they're called network externalities. You only really need one Google, you know, one search engine will probably do it. One Microsoft office system will probably do it for most people. One fake book will probably do it. One TikTok will probably do it. We don't need all the other, uh, you know, and, and, and the first guys are not always the guys that win, right? The first movers don't always have an advantage. Sometimes they do. Um, and it may or may not mean that they're evil. It could be that, that for some reason, the Chinese are behaving in a way that's you know, not socially acceptable in the proliferation of TikTok. It's a concern, obviously, people have raised, mm -hmm. but it could also just be that it's a network thing. Everybody wants to be on the same network. And so as a consequence of that, there's monopoly power or oligopoly power, you know, it could, like with oil or with oceanic ocean surface transport, right? There are 15 vessels that serve Hawaii container ships, 15. That's it. Everything Hawaii needs, the 1.5 million people roughly on average that are in Hawaii on any given day, everything they need is satisfied by 15 vessels going back and forth from the West Coast uh, to Hawaii 
there's not going to be 200 companies involved in ocean carriage. Yeah. Right now, there are two, and that's that's better than one, but it's probably not going to be three because if you have three guys operating 15 vessels, they're probably not as efficient as two guys oper- operating 15 vessels. And it's just the nature of industrial structure sometimes that leads to this concentration of market power. But as, as I suggested, when it, when the margins go from two to three or four percent to 10 or 11 percent to 15 or 16 percent, okay, I'm thinking we could harvest five or 10 percent of that. Yeah, corporate. And they, <laughs> they said, I'm just saying it's worth talking about. It's worth having a conversation yeah. about. Well, also, yeah. I think one of the big problems when you look at those numbers um, and the corporate profit levels increasing is, you know, probably not just from efficiencies that are created, but it's also yeah. from the lack of supply. And, and let, let, let's be clear. I'm not, I'm sorry. Prices. I'm not talking necessarily about taxing people at higher rates. I am oh, I talking know. about a contribution to inflation. I, I leave the other question open, but all I'm saying is that market power may very well be contributing in a nuanced and difficult to alleviate uh, manner to the current inflation environment. Yeah. Simple. Okay. I, I, you know, people ask me all the time, or I, I kind of try to, uh, you know, re- research, are we in a recession? Are, yeah. Know, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, this another deep subject. Um, it turns out, so we remember the jobless recovery 10 years ago. You're, you're the first people to hear this. I was going to roll this tomorrow at the Economic Association Conference, but I'm thinking that like the inverse of a jobless recovery. So that was the recovery a decade ago where you see GDP going up at a modest rate, but you just don't see the job creation happening, which of course is a huge political issue. I mean, politicians love the job count. They don't give a crap about GDP. In the first half of this year, U.S. real GDP declined. It didn't even stay the same. But of course, jobs have been growing and the job market is very tight. It's very difficult to find something about the aftermath of the pandemic. Just enough people left the workforce. Hey, a million Americans died. Don't forget that from COVID. Um, just enough tightness exists in the labor market that is possible that we could be in a recession right now, but jobs are still growing in the early stages of recession. Yeah. Uh, while output is not. Now that can't go on forever. And in fact, if you look at estimates for the, for the third quarter, contemporaneous so-called real-time or now casting uh, estimates of GDP this quarter, growth has been restored in real GDP. But don't take too much from that because we now know, we now date the Great Recession as having begun in December 2007, and having ended in June 2009. But if you go back and live life contemporaneously in the first half of 2008, when the recession had already begun, when Aloha Airlines was shutting down, when Bear Stearns almost went bankrupt, that Ben Bernanke and Tim Geithner had to get together and arrange a bailout. These are all things that happened in March 2008. GDP in the U.S. declined in first quarter 2008, and then increased in the second quarter of 2008. So you can have, particularly at the early stage of recession, a bit of ambiguity. And of course, the the death blow in the case of 2008 was the collapse of Lehman Brothers in September. After that, that's it. Everybody headed for the exits. And the risk right now is that something could happen that we don't anticipate, Mm -hmm. like the war in Ukraine going nuclear, oh, that, yeah. would, that would completely unravel um, the confidence people still have in, uh, in the economic system. And I dare say the political system, the electoral system in America on the eve of another general election here. Um, you know, it's, it's a little dicey. Uh, you know, I'd have to say that. And it's important. For all well, of I us, also don't, to, I don't think people anticipated, you know, major rivers just simply driving drying up. You know, like, well, there's that. I mean, that I don't even. I, you, you, you've come back to climate change two or three yeah. times in this conversation. That's a big. I'm like, dude, that's a whole nother radio show. 
by the way, I'm also not, I, I don't want people to misunderstand. I'm, I'm not saying we need to go find more oil, although I'm okay with that. I, I'm just saying, you know, my attitude on that whole thing, just to clarify here, I'm pretty sure a corner solution is not the actual answer. Like, you know, having written exams and economics courses, the corner solution where one thing is zero and the other thing is a positive yeah. number. Yeah, no, no, that's, you know, oil yeah. at zero, no gasoline powered cars. That's probably not the answer. Yeah. Um, like only electric cars, probably not the answer. Only no. photo photovoltaic panels, not mm. the answer at night. I don't care how good your damn battery is. Yeah. And by the way, talk about using exhaustible resources. Where does lithium get produced? Yeah. <laughs> you well, know the what I mean? Is there's a lot of lithium on the planet. The question is, is readily available lithium? Well, I'm, I'm just saying, where do you mine the metals? The cheapest you, you most available this, lithium that you can find anywhere on the planet is basically a disaster if you mine it. It's all yeah. everywhere on the ocean floor. You can just pick it up and filter oh, it. Oh, right, right, and, right. And bam. Yeah. But you the problem I mean? is, is you do that and, you know, sedimentation goes off the charts and that's like the bottom of the food chain. Yeah, so well, you might have... Small you know, production about. tests in areas to yeah. see if they can do it without, you know, causing major ecological impact. And if that's the case, then we've got more lithium than we know what to do with. I'm just yeah. encouraging us to resist the temptation to rush to the opposite yeah. solution yeah. from the one yeah. that we previously oh, and they, they have, you know, they say if we were to have major federal funds, uh, you can basically in six years pay off the investment of going completely electrical. But that's just a magical you know, not dealing with the consequences of massive demand increase on, you know. Or where do you dispose of the batteries? <laughs> well, you know, there are. That's, I mean, isn't that like toxic waste? I mean, you can't tell me there's not a toxic waste stream that comes from this for this energy. Yeah. Uh, production so going industry. back to the positive uh, side of the economic impacts right now, I was honestly a little shocked when I saw China cut their interest rate. And to ah, me, okay. like, that's like yeah, the China. first part of a positive, you know, part of the equation. The fact that, you know, we're going to have better bargaining power. Our dollar is going to be worth more. Their labor force is going to become cheaper. You know, to me, I'm like, man, that could be the start of helping keep those costs down. The, the thing, I don't know, are we wrapping in an hour because we've got about five minutes? So I thought I... No, uh, so we started about 10 minutes later. Oh, okay. Another, well, I, I, won't, I won't use all the 10 minutes, but I will say this about China. And we can decide, you can decide how much more we want to talk about it. So remember the old saying that uh, I, it's attributed to Paul Samuelson. I'm not sure that's true, but the stock market predicted nine out of the last five recessions, right? So <laughs> I, I, I keep hearing this about China's financial system is going to lead to this catastrophic collapse with global repercussions. And I've been waiting like 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so yes, you're abs everything you described about the Chinese financial system, the banking system, the excessive investment in residential capacity, the infrastructure investment uh, mistakes, you know, the steps too far in certain areas that may have been made in terms of transportation infrastructure or the or the Silk Road re, reboot or all yeah. of these initiatives. Those are all problematic. They're um, deeply uh, problematic in terms of systemic risk within China. Not so much for anybody else, as it turns out. And even more astounding, because we all went to graduate school together, right? We all went to the same colleges. All of the smart kids from China, when we're in our class, those were the guys getting A's in our calculus class. <laughs> right? I would have gotten an A, except for those smart guys from China who were they in the same class. They pulled the curve up. Right? They pulled up the curve. So they're not dummies. They've learned all the right stuff, and they know how things should work. But they have a political system, let's face it, that makes it challenging shall we say to get the market oriented allocation mechanism to work when you use the acronym when the chinese communist party when the ccp is calling most of the shots and the biggest shots so when the ccp says we're going to do this and we're going to do this way and these are the guys who are going to be allowed to make the money 
these who are the guys who are going to go to jail for because they don't because they're now now in the out crowd instead of the in crowd. Yeah. Um, that's a system that, as you rightly point out, is full of internal contradictions, excesses, and as a consequence, potential systemic vulnerability. Basically, one of the biggest system. issues with you know um, you know that type of government and you know those socialist practices is the fact that you make these mistakes as opposed to an open market. And while it might be good in in a period of time, eventually there can be massive consequences to it. Let's be clear, though, be that's, there's, there's not that much difference between China choosing, between the CCP choosing to subsidize photovoltaic panel production at, to, pro, to provide low-cost equipment for us to install on our roofs in America, and the Congress passing a CHIPS bill that will spend $40 billion on subsidies for semiconductor factories and maybe another $24 billion in tax credits. I mean, the, the, the good part of that bill, by the way, is the 10 billion they've committed to R&D, because that's the one thing we ought to be subsidizing. But yeah. building factories, you know, we just went through a couple of years of people getting paid for doing nothing. And yeah. I, you know, let's just be careful about drawing the distinction because industrial policy, regardless of under what regime it exists, can go too far. China's gone way too far, but we've gone in America, we've gone farther than I ever thought we would. And in Hawaii, I, dude, I mean, I haven't crazy. read this. Our tax now, I heard another economist uh, state this. Actually, no, just some BS person on YouTube, um, you know, go down one of those rabbit holes. And I yeah. just, I don't believe it because it's too big of a number. He said that their residential real estate bubble is a hundred times worse than our sub, uh, basically our subprime crisis, our real estate bubble in 2009. I, I don't know what the factor of multiplic you know, yeah. the multiplier is, but it's greater than one. And, uh, <laughs> for, the simple per for the simple person, Paul, you know, just, you know, we, we've talked a lot of technical things. What should, I mean, what should the simple, like for me, the simple person I say, you know, not knowing all the numbers and stuff, what should I do? Just go off my day to day, not turn on the news, you know, see the, you know, the stocks are climbing, but hearing there's a recession. I mean, you know, what, what, what is the prediction or should I just, you know, keep my normal buying going on for the next yeah. year? You know, corporate what you bonds, doing? put your money into corporate bonds. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, so I'm not an investment advisor. Yeah, that's and I, advice advice. I need to resist the temptation to yeah. you know, do advice because <laughs> I'm also not rich, which proves that I'm not an investment advisor. Um, I think a prudent posture to take in the current economic environment, the current political environment, the, the aftermath, the aftershocks of what we just went through in terms of the initial biological uh, risk event and its ongoing evolution is a very conservative, risk-averse posture. Now that doesn't mean you have to we have to go back into our caves and hide out, but I, you know I don't want to pick on anybody, but I have to I have to pick examples. Uh, so let me just give an example of the extreme behavior that I've adopted, and y'all can laugh at it, uh, but um, it's the kind of thing I'm talking about. So I haven't been in a Target in two years. I haven't been in a Lowe's or Home Depot in two years. I may never go inside one of those big box retailers ever again, but I buy stuff from Home Depot and Lowe's and Target. I do it on my smartphone and I go by and pick that stuff up or have it delivered to my house. That, no, I'm not gonna get a lot of biological risk exposure in a Home Depot where there don't ever seem to be any employees and you have to do your self-checkout anyway. <laughs> but, you, but the point is that if you look at what global or national corporate brands are doing in just sort of the retail distribution space, they are adapting to a change in behavior that's prudent. Don't spend as much time around a lot of people right now, just maybe for the next year or few, um, you know, and uh, make sure that 
you're not at risk of losing your house. Uh, try to, you know, don't get behind on your car payments, right? Because if you had to replace your car right now, it's really expensive because we can't manufacture them because we don't have the semiconductors that go into them. There's mm -hmm. like a year and a half waiting list for a new Ford Bronco. My son waited, my son waited six months to get a Ford F-150 while he was waiting. He bought a Chevy Suburban for $5,000 used, an old Chevy Suburban for $5,000. And then three months later, sold it for $8,000 <laughs> while he's waiting for his brand new pickup truck. Like really yeah. you need a pickup truck? I'm just saying, just think, think of the world my grandmother grew up in, right? My grandmother who never wore store-bought clothes in her life, in her entire life. That's a different world. The world I grew up in where every house in my neighborhood where I live now had a two-car carport, but every family had one car. <laughs> and now on Maui, there are more registered vehicles on Maui than there are humans on Maui. Think about that for a second. So all of the things you hear, you know, in these green activists, this Greta, what's her name, who just so needs to go to college and learn something, who are, you know, talking with passion about we need to change our lifestyle. You know what? Fine. You still need to go to college and take some natural resource economics, but fine. I get that it's of a concern to you that's a profound moral character. And you know what? Uh, let's all get on board with that and maybe just cut back a little and I think a little bit more defensively about the things that could happen. Um, as a, here's the thing. Dude, can I say this on radio? Here, I'll bleep myself, right? I mean, we just through, went through some <laughs> and And what? We're all going to go back to doing the things, things the way we did them before? Are you serious? Did you not learn anything? From what just happened yeah. so yeah my my ups guy is here more often than the lady who delivers the mail Think you're on that. a first name basis uh not really he seems really angry and overworked i, I apologize for all the stuff i'm ordering but i'm just saying uh there are different ways to do things now that um we can all engage in in little pieces you know Try I ride your bike. Try to walk for once. Completely disagree. I don't think there's anything that we can do. I think it's already far too late. Even if humans well, all stopped existing at once on it, the planet, it, I think we've hit the point where average temperatures have increased so much th that um, it's releasing methane in the tundra from permafrost. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Methane yeah. is ten times more reactive to the atmosphere. So sure. what happens is that goes up and it creates uh you know a chain reaction we hit that last year and and we also are producing more carbon than the planet's also ever seen so even if humans didn't exist all of a sudden magically it's too late anyway i think there's two solutions one is horrible it's going with planes and dropping ash to reflect uv and one is very novel it actually works quite well on paper they go up into space and they basically put uh, a, a multi-refractory solar sail in between the sun and us, and they can completely dial in the amount of ultraviolet that hits the planet. They can cool it just enough to increase precipitation, which helps remove stuff from the atmosphere and shrink the atmosphere because when it gets colder, things condense sure. and uh, basically cool the temperature and prevent permafrost from melting then you can work on all the other stuff, but it's already too late in my opinion. <laughs> well, well I, we're, yeah, go. no, no, but I was just going to, yeah, go, go, go ahead. Paul, go right. Paul. Well, we're, we're certainly cascading. So I, I'll just yeah. add that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the main thing is we all just take each day, live a good life and, you know, do good. Like Paul said, maybe make changes in our life, you know, that, you know, yeah. Hey, maybe walk a little more when you, instead of driving, you know, yeah. or, or anything like that, not to make this a climate thing, but for the economy or like your yeah. finances, you know, do little things. Well, and as my doctor says, for your heart health, moron. Yeah. But 
uh, <laughs> I, let, let's not end on a on a negative note here. There's yes. an opportunity here, and it, tie, it ties back to the supply thing we were talking about earlier. Sort of a silver bullet, and I'm I'm happy for you to find one, Clint, and have it fly mm-hmm. over and seed the, the clouds or something. Yeah. Um, it's it's probably about a bazillion people figuring out that wait, there's more carbon in the atmosphere. Hmm, maybe I can make money on that, right? Are there people realizing an opportunity to carbon create carbon. productive capacity that either, you know, captures and and sequesters it permanently or uses it mm-hmm. like a tree does? Yeah. To you see what I mean? And we don't have that set up. It's just like we don't let people build enough houses. We don't let people who could make money off of carbon actually earn that income. Yeah. We're so focused on giving money to Elon Musk that we forget that Haleakala Ranch could be making money on reforestation. Yeah, Colin Cameron, the late Colin Cameron, told me this story. I've had other people. I've got friends over on Maui. They say, nah, that's not true. Colin Cameron told me this story when he was a young kid. We were having lunch at one of these business lunches. I'm sitting next to him. And I always ask these old codgers, tell me the most incredible story from your life that you can remember. And Colin Cameron says, I remember when I was a small kid, my tutu telling me how the forest, you know, at Hosmer Grove on Halakla went all the way across the upper slopes of Halakla to Ulupalakua all forests where you see pasture now mm-hmm. and now exactly. i've heard other oh, other people tell me now nah, that was never true i'm just saying i heard it from colin cameron that's the kind of thing i'm talking about if holla color ranch or anybody else um Kaunulu ranch or any of these guys in upcountry that own a lot of that open pasture land had a way to make money another <laughs> other than having cows graze on it eat you know, grass and do methane, yeah. um, but a really compelling way to get back into um, uh, uh, forestation. Reforestation, yeah. Yeah, reforestation. I mean, well, it's true, that whole them. area up there between, you know, like, you know, Wailea, Kihei, all the way up to top of Haleakala Ranch used to be basically um, major forest for sandalwood and koa. And there was rivers that always flowed from there because it, basically allowed rain, well, you know and it's wa- absolutely it's the water that's another thing this is the, the people who dispute this are people who know maui water uh, but the implication colin's implication was that water did not used to be a problem yeah on maui exactly well thank you so much it has been a fantastic show um yeah it really we wow, we're all over the place hours, on this one and <laughs> hours and hours but just a, a short little summary overall do you think China is going to be a net positive for us or negative with the issues that they're dealing with? I think geopolitically, they're a huge risk. But I think oh, from an yeah. economic standpoint, right? I, I, you know, all this belligerence, it's really pointless. It's as if nobody learned anything from the last century. And um, that, that to me is actually the more material risk because I, honestly, I'm not sure we know in the West how to deal with it. We're so chill by comparison. I mean, this is the guys that invaded Iraq over weapons of mass destruction. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, uh, that's probably where our risk exposure is. And in Hawaii, let's remember, right? That's, this is where wars start. Um, but from an economic standpoint, I, I think their own problems in China are largely contained they don't they're less likely to metastasize yeah uh, having grade defaulting uh, was actually a positive of their policy procedures to skim in investment so it is part of cost cleaning you know getting the dead the dead weight off the balance sheet actually is it's cleansing yeah people don't want to realize that yes it's going to hurt their gdp in the short run but it's going to prevent the country from imploding there there are better ways more managed ways to to do the same thing than having a catastrophic default but yeah. um you know these things do happen
Yeah, we also didn't have the time. But hey, again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Paul Brubaker I, of TZ Economics. What is it, TZ? TZ Economics. All right. And how do, the, how do people Tango Zulu. Wait, how, how do people find you on the line? Uh, I don't want them to find me. Oh, okay. I, I have, a, I have a website that my son designed. It has something from 2014 <laughs> on it. Uh, but yeah, tzeconomics.com, send me an email. Paul Brubaker at tzeconomics.com. Perfect. And happy to join you, Byron and Clint. Thanks. Thank you. And Byron? Thank you. Um, how Axia do we help home, you? We have our axiohomeloans.com in the Kihei. Easy to find us. And I'm Clint Hansen with Maui Luxury Real Estate. And you can listen to this and all shows at MauiRealEstateRadio.com or just listen to us Mondays at um on the 1110 AM, 98.7 FM KOI Radio Group. Aloha, everybody, and have a great day. Bye-bye. Aloha. Bye.